All right, y'all, just uh, to get started here this morning, let me say this. We're going to watch a, a quick video here. Um, I just generally, uh, um, last week I, I, I played two uh, trailers, one from the 1972 um, uh, dispensational uh, movie, uh, A Thief in the Night, and then I played the trailer for I believe it's 20, the 2012 or 2010 film, Left Behind, starring Kirk Cameron, who we're going to uh, see right here. So the person that's talking to Kirk, you can't see him, is Gary DeMar. And if you remember, he's one of the guys that I mentioned in the list of books. Okay. Um, so we will uh, start at this point playing this.
individuals who have been transformed by the same process of faith, character, <coughs> self-government under God's laws, and then educating yourself and your children. And if you'll do that, generationally, you will experience uh, lasting liberty internally and externally from the control of sin and tyrants who try to control you. And it was a game changer for me. And, and, and Marshall wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Pollyanna. I mean, he saw, he, no. he, he knew what was going on around here, but he was probably one of the most optimistic, forward-thinking guys around who rooted everything in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his moral standards. That, that's right. You're exactly right. Because uh, Marshall wasn't just trying to make you feel good. Um, he, he wasn't just trying to score points with you. Uh, he, what he was doing was actually, I think, correctly understanding the victory of the gospel that is the message of Scripture. When Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth, and he said, may your kingdom come and your will be done in, in, on earth as it is in heaven, well, what in the world does that mean? If it doesn't mean that somehow we get to be conduits of, of heavenly influence to affect earth to make it more like heaven. And, uh, and, and what have we got to lose by giving it our all? Uh, we've got the, the, the God of heaven who said he's going to be with us till the end of the age. Uh, and not only did he explain that that's the message of scripture, but he would point out how history proves that it's true. Because it's happened over and over and over again in cultures that were just lost causes that experienced revival and transformation, not just in individual hearts, um, but in entire uh, societies and nations. Marshall left behind quite a legacy. The number of people who have been influenced by Marshall beyond just you, uh, I mean, probably millions of people, and I think I'm, I'm confident about the future because people like you, people like Marshall, Bill Federer, um, and uh, Ted Bear, and so many others who are out there uh, extending the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel and God's word. That's Thank right. you. Thank That's you. Right. I appreciate it. Good seeing you again. Great to see you, see you again. again. Bye-bye. So that was, uh, <clears throat> I can send that out if you're interested, but that was just an impromptu interview between Gary DeMar and Kirk Cameron. I just thought it was an interesting contrast to him starring in a film in the early 2000s about being left behind and what all that means and seeing how his eschatology as he has looked at the scriptures. Um, you know, in a lot of, <coughs> excuse me, in a great many ways, what happens to us is um, by default, we um, start where we're at. That is to say, um, you come to know Christ, whatever church you grew up in, whatever they teach, that's your starting assumption. And that's right, that's good. But then what we're supposed to be doing is be like the Bereans, it says in the scriptures, who study the scriptures. And the more we study the scriptures, the more we look at the scriptures, um, we should grow, we should mature. You know, really, the story of the Bible is about God's design for men to uh, rise up and become mature. And, of course, Adam fails at that tremendously in the garden. But the greater king, the greater Adam, Jesus Christ, comes and he fulfills that maturity. And we are his disciples uh, learning through that. 
Got a couple other things here just briefly this morning. Anybody ever seen one of these before? Anybody? Who said that? Well, it's important for research purposes. In, in case you didn't know, I have a shelf back behind my desk on the bottom full of stuff that I call for research purposes. It's not something I want people to walk to my shelf and pull off and, hey, let me read this, right? Although this one worries me less. Other stuff is really heretical, but it's, but it's stuff that I get to research when I'm dealing with particular issues. Um, but, you know, I grew up uh, dispensationalist and, and looking at things. And if, uh, for example, like what it does is in this particular booklet, um, it's got a whole, uh, you know, these graphic images and then portions of Revelation. What's that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You can look at it later and tell me. But, but you know, dispensationalism, the idea is that God worked in different uh, dispensations. He kind of treated the world differently at each stage historically. This is kind of a little bit different take where they've made the different dispensations uh, based off of the seven churches that you find in Revelation. And it's church eras. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was reading through this the other day, just looking at it, it's uh, really kind of fascinating um, how, they, uh, how they've divided it up. Um, and, of course, this, this was published, I think, in 1974. And uh, it's something that has been around my family for quite a while. But we'll spend a little bit of time next week discussing the history um, of the study of end things throughout the course of the church. Um, and then we'll spend a little bit more time breaking down dispensationalism, although you will hear that um, uh, a little bit in today's lesson. Main roots, about 1830. So... We'll be hit, and you'll see when I go through today's lesson, i got a couple other just brief things here today, but we'll kind of hit that in in, um, kind of a direct and hard fashion next week. And the following week, we're going to start hitting biblical passages. But today, part of what we'll be doing is what I call continuing the setup, okay? So, and that is to say, how do we approach the scriptures? But we'll get to that in just one second. I mentioned in the... The email that I sent out to those that were in Sunday school last week, if you were interested, I would send out the the PDF, uh, which included the Covenantal Kingdom. Um, how many of you guys? How many guys got this this week? The email. How many guys read any of it yet? Okay. All right. So there's a lot of interesting things in there, and it's just generally the guide I'm using. Um, I like it because it's pretty concise. Right, but it deals with a lot of, you know, hits the scripture, looks at the scripture. How should we look at the scriptures? Um, if you, I mentioned Gary Demar, who we, who was uh, the interviewer in that that uh, video there, his book Last Days Madness. Um, that's a pretty uh, pretty clear and distinctive history of um, the way the church and both the, the rise of dispensationalism, well researched, well documented. Um, it's probably 350, 400 pages. If, if, you, if you don't feel like you have the time for that, 
We've got uh, Why the End is Not Near by Pastor Dwayne Garner. It's uh, part of our Answers in an Hour series at Athanasius Press. It's only 56 pages. So this is the busy person's uh, reader's guide for uh, Last Day's Madness. These we have available at the church. If you're interested in it, if you're going to read it, we will give you this for free. These are I get these at a very good rate. Um, and then um, I, I mentioned in the, in the email, I've mentioned this again through New Eyes by Jim Jordan. We're actually going to be addressing some of these things uh, today. This is a pre-setup, but I recommend this. If you really want to understand the scriptures from a biblical standpoint, understanding God's design for symbolism and typology, you need this book, okay? We're moderns. We've been instructed in modern uh, ways of reading things, doing things, um, and we apply rationalism and uh, just we're detached from understanding as God wrote the scriptures. Um, if you go on Amazon, you can get this book for about 30, almost $36. Um, if you um, would like to purchase one from the church, I've got a deal with the with the publisher, I can get them for $20 a piece. So um, I, I just about sold out all that, that I had just in the first wave of requests. I've got some more right here that I, I got in. Um, if we sell all these, then I, will, I can get some more relatively quickly, probably in, within a few weeks. But I recommend that. And then I had forgotten about this. I, I often recommend if you want to try to understand the scriptures, you, you need to read this. And then, to, again, if you're going to understand the, old, the, the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. Again, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Peter Lightheart's A House for My Name. Anybody read this book before? Excuse me. So um, it's interesting. I was, I was doing some research for Sunday School this week, and I had forgotten he wrote this in the introduction. He says, this is through new eyes for dummies. Okay? <laughs> I don't know. What I, what I see that he does is that he takes what, what Peter Lightheart does with this book is he takes the Old Testament and he tells the story in chronological order. As you know, the, the Old Testament's not laid out in chronological order, and so this becomes helpful, but he's also applying the symbolism and typology that the scriptures use while he's telling that narrative. Um, so very helpful. So I always tell folks, if you, if you really want to get a good grasp, start with Through New Eyes, then read this. And you're gonna, that, that would be your preparation and introduction to in-depth uh, Bible study. Um, I'll just point uh, this out. My copy of Through New Eyes has the very cool original cover. Got the, uh, the spectacles. On it, but for whatever reason, I guess they thought it was, uh, uh, you know, wouldn't work in the academic setting. I don't know. <laughs> so, all that having been said, I want to just mention something regarding format here. Um, we've got a lot of material to cover, um, and so we're going to kind of hit through and rapid fire generalities today in preparation for how to think about the scriptures. And I will open up uh, for some questions. One last thing uh, before we uh, 
before we uh, get into today's lesson. Uh, last week, Carlos asked an interesting question in relationship to uh, the narrow gate uh, in, in view of our belief in postmillennialism, which says um, that we believe the scriptures to be that the, um, that the nations will be discipled, which obviously means we're a long way from accomplishing that, but God's will and his work of his church will accomplish these things. And this idea of limited atonement, I did some research this week. I have a, just a brief response to that, um, which wasn't much more than what I was thinking originally. But essentially, the difficulty is when you try to take the scriptures and you try to force thinking through um, the scriptures and you try to force it through one verse or one concept, like a very selected limited atonement, it, it, it makes it very hard, and you, 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 you kind of miss the, the larger narrative of Scripture. We have to guard against that, right? We need to be careful that we decide that we are students of Scripture and not necessarily um, we're five-point or four-point Calvinists, or we're this or we're that. Because if you, the difficulty is those can be good frameworks, but when you try to say, okay, I'm going to make all of Scripture fit through this lens, you, you're going to end up missing what the, the larger intent of God's Word is. And this is even, we can do this with uh, confessions and creeds as well. Um, you know, like the Westminster Confession, it's very helpful, very useful. Um, but it speaks about in decretal language. Why? Because it was written under the times of kings. They think in that way. The scriptures are written under covenantal language. Therefore, sometimes, especially in our modern readings of it, we draw conclusions that narrow the scope of what scriptures are saying. Lastly, remember our warning from Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and so largely, back to your, your question just real quick. Um, in that passage in Matthew, and then it's also in Luke um, you know, Jesus was speaking to those folks. We can't ever lose sight of the fact that he may be speaking on an eternal uh, sense, but he's also speaking to those people. And for right there, a great many of those folks that were hearing Jesus speaking, they were not going to follow Jesus. Now, God, in his great and merciful ways, following his death and resurrection, many of uh, Jews did come to know, many of the people of Israel did come to know uh, Christ, but there was a clear judgment uh, against them. You know, they they were again. This is this is really what they were doing, and we'll mention this just briefly today. The the leadership of the day, the people of the day, they they had their own view of who Christ would be, what Jesus would do, and because of that, they were on their own agenda and not following the agenda of God as laid out in Scripture. You're saying the gate was narrower for Jews. I said for that moment at that time. That's, I think, the greater point. Um, we can talk about that further. There's, I, I heard an interesting quote uh, in, a, in a Rush Dooney book this week. Um, but uh, the, the uh, idea that, that God is limiting things, uh, you know, if, if part of this comes, and we're going to talk about this today, this idea that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and, and very narrow and, and restrictive, and Jesus is about love and freedom and this sort of separation 
um, of the scriptures is, is inaccurate. I mean, if you look at scripture on the whole, what do you see in the Old Testament repeated over and over again? He's merciful. He's caring. He does all these things. And I mean, I, I didn't count it up, but I imagine it's in the hundreds and hundreds of times that the word mercy, mercy or merciful in relationship to God shows up in the Old Testament. Uh, real quick here, remember, I talked about this last week, just warning, Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Unity, people of God, unity. Our brothers and sisters who may um, have different points of view relating to eschatology or a great many things about the Christian life, deal with them gently. See them as your brothers and sisters in Christ. And just like even in this very room, we have to bring one another along in love. There is truly one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one bath. He, he says all of this. What is he trying to get across? There's one body of Christ, Amen. right? Love one another. Um, I would avoid social media arguments and arguments in general um, with your brothers and sisters. You know, it's important, though, because what happens is if you, if you move down in Ephesians 4 and look at verses 14 and 15, you know, we're supposed to be looking at the scriptures that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So, yes, we're going to come to new understandings of the scripture. Be kind um, and let us grow up so that we're not blown about. All right, real quick here. If we're going to understand the scriptures, if we're going to look at what God has to say concerning prophecy, we need to understand something. The scripture, the Bible, is one story. It's one narrative. It's one plan. It's one, uh, it's one message from God. Right? We have a tendency, we, we live in the era of reductionism. Right? It comes from a scientific idea. If we keep studying stuff and breaking it down, making it smaller and smaller and smaller... We'll understand it all just better, right? So we, have, we, we categorize the Bible as history books, poetry, law, a conglomeration of a bunch of unrelated stories, and then there's the prophetic, right? The scripture is one story. Peter Lighthart says uh, in an article from First Things, above all, scripture makes visible the invisible God of infinite power, compassion, generosity, and justice, right? So there's one single message to basically to take the invisible God and make him visible to us. And in that way, we see his infinite power, his compassion, his generosity, and his justice. You know, it's important when we think about this. I'm sorry, we're going to say something? Um, we see Jesus following his resurrection on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, beginning verse 27. And beginning at Moses, he's talking to, uh, to Cleopas and Simon and, 
and this is after he's walked down the road, and he says, and, begin, and they, they don't understand what's going on, and they, they're astonished that this guy that they meet along the road doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem, and obviously their eyes were blinded. They, they were disciples of Jesus, and they didn't even recognize him, and in part because sometimes in life we get so overwhelmed with our circumstances, we can't see things to save our lives, right? But we also know that the Spirit's going to open up their eyes for them. But it says this, and this is Jesus, and it says, And beginning at Moses, so Jesus is doing this, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, so the, what is Moses? What are the books of Moses, right? That's the books of law, right? And all the prophets, he expanded to them in what? All the scriptures, that's all of the Old Testament <laughs> scriptures, concerning himself, right? And later on in Luke 24, we see this when Jesus shows up to his, what we would call the apostles, you know, those primary disciples, right? In verse 43, it says, And he took and he ate in their presence, right? Showing that he actually had a physical resurrection. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled that were written in what? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Right? So he has taken everything, every aspect of the Old Testament and said, right, they are concerning me. Right? Modern Christianity, by contrast, from, say, medieval or Reformed teaching, has not quite known what to do with the Old Testament. Okay? We, we see that, that a lot of times the Old Testament has just been discarded. It's thrown into the rubbish bin, so to speak. Right? Um, because it's not relevant. You know, it, it's seen, this, this total dismissive attitude it's, it, of the Old Testament is seen in what we call today classical liberalism. And it's mainly a product of 19th century thinking. This was driving a separation of the God of the New Testament and Old Testament. This is actually the revival of Marcionism. Marcion was a preach that God sent Jesus Christ who was entirely new, alien God, distinct from the vengeful God of Israel who had created the world. By the way, he is condemned as a heretic by early church fathers such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian. And he was excommunicated by the church. I know for Protestants, yes. I don't know. Could be. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not certain. So, but part of what they're trying to do here is this view turns religion to be more about inner feelings and inner intentions. Okay? It's separating the fact that, that the Bible is one story, one narrative, one God. Like we just heard in Ephesians, right? And so the liberal church uh, historian Adolf von Harnack suggests that Paul delivered Christianity from Judaism. And, and he, he makes the, the, the statement that religion in its new phase pertains to the individual, and it creates dichotomies, right, of flesh and spirit 
inner and outer, life and death, right? It's trying to divide our thinking, okay? And so we have to understand that, this, that these are true categories, right? But I, I, I want to say this in general, people of God, when you see where it says uh, the battles between the flesh and the spirit, all right, don't lean into the Greek philosophical view of Platonism, that is to say that the created order is bad, right? The, the battle is not with my heart pumping here, right, or this actual fleshy body that I've, I've got here. It's really the sinful nature. That's what that's what's we're battling with, okay? And, of course, again, um, this guy Von Harnick says, the genius of Christianity is its liberalism from externals. What he means is from the created world. Okay, and this is in direct contrast to how the Bible works and how God has revealed himself. There's a second idea that the Old Testament is just of historical importance. Um, it, it's been explained this way, a simple rubble to be removed, right? We've got to do all that so we can find the hidden treasure beneath. So you've got to move all this other stuff. Don't pay attention. It's just about historical record, and, and we're going to get something out of it. For many modern evangelicals, the attacks on external, on the external su uh, supports of religion, okay, and by that, let me explain that for a second. So what are we saying, okay, that, that God has taken, and, and we're going to cover this here shortly, but, but God has taken the world and he instructs us about himself in this. We know that from Romans 1, right? Of course, when we read Romans 1, we typically say, yeah, those lousy, unrepentant sinners, see, the world is taught in nature, you know, the, the created order is, has, has condemned them because they don't believe in God. What we fail then to do is say, well, wait a minute, how does the created world instruct us? Right? We just look at it as Paul is trying to condemn them, but he is saying more than that. He is telling us, he's reminding us that in the things that God has made, he is teaching us. And so, um, I, you know, the biblical worldview is not given to us um, in, in, in an idea of, of analytical language, of philosophy and science, but in the rich and compact language of symbolism and art. It is pictured in ritual and architecture, in numerical structures and geographical directions, in symbols and types, in trees, in stars. In short, it is given to us in a pre-modern package that seems at places very strange. Now that's a quote out of Through New Eyes. That's right on page one. Okay? This is how God instructs us and teaches us. And you say, why are we talking about all this? in order to talk about the end of the world. Well, we can't rightly understand these things. I want, first of all, to say you've got to apply the rules of how we study God and understand the Scriptures to all the parts of the Bible. Right now, a lot of times, what we have is we study the Bible, the New Testament, and a lot of parts of the Bible one way, and then we get to prophecy, and then there's symbolism and typology, but it's detached from the rest of God's word, okay? And that's not the place for us to be. One revelation of God through his word, 
right? So if he says and explains things to us in one place, and he's teaching us symbolism and typology in one place, we need to apply that symbolism and typology, okay? And there are some rules about how you might do that rightly, but we need to apply that um, to all portions of Scripture, including prophecy. Prophecy is not alone all by itself, okay? Um, here's another uh, good quote, I think, um, on th from, th from New Eyes, and it says this, When we look at the stars, we imagine millions of suns very far away from us. There are all kinds of variables, double stars, neutron stars, galaxies, quasars. In the Bible, however, the stars are given as signs and seasons. You see that right there in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, right? And for what else? And for days and years, that's Genesis 1.14. Because the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. That's Psalm 19. While the biblical perspective does not invalidate the telescopic, in other words, science, you know, we're looking at it, and you know there's been a lot of great pictures coming from this new... Uh, Yep, the James Webb Telescope, right? That's spectacular, right? That, does, that doesn't invalidate the fact that God is using this to instruct us and he set them up as, uh, to, to be rulers uh, does not um, change the investigation of the starry heaven. Could it be that we are not seeing all we should when we look at the stars? And he asked this question, do we need new eyes? Uh, again, I want to say this. A philosophy of history is extremely important. This is just to relate back to the, the idea that the Old Testament should only be history. A philosophy of history is extremely important for man, especially today after Hegel and Marx and many other of our modern-day philosophers. When we go to the Bible for, for a philosophy of history, however, we encounter covenant renewals. Sabbaths, festivals, jubilee years, and the day of the Lord. If we intend to apply the Bible to this modern problem, we shall first have to acquire a biblical perspective. I also want to point out that, that we have to understand kind of the rise of what happened in, in the 19th century. Okay, what happens in the 19th century? Well, it's really the product of what's been going on um, in uh, most of Europe. There's, there's all kinds of, of internal pressures. We have the French Revolution. We have the Enlightenment. We have the rise of uh, German philosophy as well that begins to have great influence in how we approach things. And they're all pushing to elevate man and man's thinking right? Kant and Hegel, we're going to rise up. Our, our, by our own means, our own way of thought, we can solve problems. And then it swings all the way into what? Everybody's hanging on, they're pushing, and, and nobody's got good answers. And then Charles Darwin comes on the scene and provides a way to discount the origin of the world, right? And science, you know, that's part of the elevation of man's thinking and rationalism, right? And so what do we get out of that? At the same time that you have this going on, you see the rise of Marx. What comes out of, what's the, the, the 
Uh, if you have Darwin and Marx, what comes out of that? Freud, <laughs> right? Which does, I think, lead to that as well, right? But, but, but here, here's what happens there. Freud comes along and says, all right, science, because now we don't need God. Science, one of the main goals of science should be to help men be able to relieve their guilt without God. Right? That's, that, that's the, the perspective that he's taken. And even though many of his methodologies have been discarded, that's still the general view um, out there in the world today when people are seeing psychologists and psychiatrists and folks of this nature. And I know there are Christian ones, and that would be a whole other subject for another day. But, that's, but that, you know, Christians make up a, a very small window of that, that group. right? And so I just want to say... Understand there's obviously, scripturally, significant difficulties uh, with all that. But, but we should remember, uh, remember that um, you know, men, outside of God revealing things, don't view God's word rightly. Right? Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what? Anybody know the rest of that? The things that are made, right? I'm, I'm largely just right here trying to make the case that God teaches us through symbols and types. And he's doing that very clearly through all of Scripture. So that when we get to these portions of Scripture, when we start tackling these portions of Scripture for uh, you know, for the study of eschatology or end things, we have to say, wait a minute, what symbols are, are at play here, right? We see this, okay, in Genesis 1, sets up a worldview grid for us to use later on in Scripture for symbolic purposes. First of all, and you'll see this as we talk about some of this, and by the way, this class can't possibly cover everything. We're going to hit some major portions of Scripture I'm trying to build a framework. Um, we can certainly do more studies in the future, but I want us to begin to grapple with what are the right tools, how do we approach the study of the scriptures. Okay, but, but it also, for, for example, Genesis 1 sets up certain categories for animals, right? Monsters, sea creatures, winged birds, cattle, beasts of the fields, and creeping things. It sets those up. These six categories recur in the scriptures for instance in leviticus 11 where we find a discussion of clean and unclean animals there are five categories domestic animals cattle fish birds wild animals beasts of the field and creeping things even the great monsters are used symbolically in scripture often to represent the nations in revolt against god and of course the best known instances or usages are the beasts of the books of Daniel and Revelation. But if you start to understand how God uses these both as symbols and types, you'll, you'll start to understand a little more about what, what's actually happening in Daniel and Revelation. Yes? It, it is just so insane then that Hobb chose Leviathan as the, the name for his study of how a nation ultimately I think in a lot of the ways that he taught a nation in rebellion to God <laughs> uh, 
he calls it after one of those those monsters uh, of of the deep, which is which is pretty interesting. He I don't know if that was conscious, if he was acknowledging the scriptural use of uh, monster language and applying uh, you know patience and rebellion to God, but it's interesting. No, um, and if you're interested more in what that book's about, talk to uh, Jonathan after. Uh, it's just a study of modern statehood. <coughs> yeah, I know that, but then a lot of people might not know that. Huh? Is, is Thomas a Puritan? No. Uh, modern, more modern than this. He, he, Thomas Cobb, the one you were talking about, right? He had some very unorthodox views. Uh, I think he would have said he was a Christian, but um, I think was trying to subvert a number of those. But uh, he had some. Yeah, we. So let me let me because we're we're gonna run out of time here. I want to hit a few more things here real quick. Okay, rules for interpretation. First of all, biblical symbolism and imagery is not a code. All right, the Bible does not use a symbol when a literal statement will do. Okay, biblical symbolism like poetry is evocative language. Okay, it's used when specific language is insufficient. The Bible uses this kind of imagery to call up in our minds various associations which have been established by the Bible's own literary art. Okay, in other words, if John in Revelation 13 had wanted to say Nero, he would have said Nero. Instead, he said beast. By using the symbol beast, he was not just giving a code for Nero. He was bringing into mind the whole series of biblical associations. The beast in the garden, Adam clothed in skins of beast, Nebuchadnezzar turned into a beast in Daniel 4, and the beasts in Daniel's vision, the human beasts who rioted against God. So all of this, I just want us to understand there's a whole... Uh, situation here. The other thing is biblical symbols do not exist in isolation. Okay, what this means is symbols have meaning within a set of sim symbolic relations or within a symbolic system. This means that symbols have to be interpreted within the symbolic design in which they are located. Alright? So you got to think about it as a network of relationships. And I know, man, it sounds like, man, we're just so far out here. And, and when we start talking about this in some specific passages, it will apply this a little more clearly. But I feel like it's very important to have this set up in our minds, right? So if, if we're looking at the beasts in Daniel, what does Scripture say about beasts? Or if we're looking at uh, certain things like the, the sun, moon, and stars falling in Revelation, what is that? What does the Scriptures tell us that means? And, you know, it isn't just about the Genesis 1 passage. We see those, that typology all through the scriptures. So I, I want to just uh, finally point out a couple of things here. All right, the Bible is not written in terms of modern science or philosophy. To the great extent, the Bible is written in pregnant language of imagery. Genesis 1 describes the creation of the world in a language of appearance and sets up for us a visual worldview grid. The world and its contents are not a bunch of random facts, but were created with a design and purpose. The world and all that it contains were made in part as pointers to God. Thus, 
in some sense, they symbolize God's attributes to us. This is important. Because of sin, we tend not to see this, and our worldview is askew. The Bible, however, will help us see God's world through new eyes. So let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is to reveal uh, you to ourselves, Lord, that you have given it to us so that we can understand you better, that you've created this world and this universe also as a testament to you. And if we can um, worship you and understand you in this way through sound, through beauty, through color, through creation, Lord, we, we, we want to incorporate those into our understanding of you, your word, and how to live our lives. We rejoice and thank you. Please prepare our hearts for worship and the renewal of your covenant promises with us. In Jesus' name, amen.